Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire. Life is filled with possibilities, even seemingly impossible possibilities. But in whatever possibility there is for our lives and living, one thing is for certain. If God is in the midst of it, there is always something good to be found. Based on the Old Testament story of Joseph from Genesis chapter 45 and Luke chapter 6 verses 26 through 38, here's the message we're calling, If God is in it. It is, for my money, one of the great scenes of the Old Testament. And by the way, uh, it has a special place in my heart because it was the focus of my seminary Hebrew reading class back in the fall of 1982. The climax of an epic story in which a mystery is solved, brothers are reunited, and the chickens come home to roost. Love it. Here's the backstory. You heard the conclusion from Cindy this morning. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. It is the story of Joseph, famous for that coat of many colors that we all heard about in Sunday school, who years before our text for this morning even was uh, a possibility. Joseph had been cast into a pit and sold into slavery by his own brothers in a fit of anger and jealousy, in part due to the aforementioned coat of many colors. But now, thanks to Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, Joseph becomes neither slave nor prisoner, but in fact had risen to become second in command of all of Egypt, essentially Pharaoh's own chief of staff, if you can believe that. This was a position, you see, that included the job of buying and selling grain in anticipation of a great famine on the land, which makes it all the more ironic and all the great for the story that one day Joseph looks up to find that the very brothers, the same brothers who left him for dead so many years before, are now coming to him for the food needed to sustain their lives. How ironic. Now, of course, the brothers had no idea at all that this is Joseph. They, they'd long assumed that he was either dead or else someone's slave. But now, in the grand tradition of all great narratives, the truth is about to be real and revealed. And, and I remember back to that Hebrew reading class. We knew this story from Sunday school, but we were leaning forward in great anticipation. How is this going to come out? The question of how this will come about comes down to this. What's Joseph going to do? Now, in the movies, this is what they call the big payoff. The moment in which the hero finally prevails and the villains get what's coming to them. And Joseph, it should be said, has both the motive for vengeance and the power to make it happen. So, we think. Why shouldn't he repay his brothers for what they'd done to him? It's certainly what you would expect someone in Joseph's position to do. And moreover, 
you know, you read this story, you find out what happened, and you think to yourself, that's what the brothers deserve. But what Joseph does do in this moment of truth is something that nobody expects. He cries. And not just moist eyes and a few sniffles either. We're talking what is referred to these days as ugly cries. In fact, as Cindy was reading this, I was reminded, he just keeps on crying. He cries when he sees his brothers. He cries when he sees his youngest brother, Benjamin. He cries about the situation. He cries about everything. In fact, he cried so loudly, so profoundly, so ugly, that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. (laughs) And then, rather to angrily condemn his brothers for what they've done, Through his tears, Joseph joyfully starts talking about God. About how God had somehow turned all the evil that had befallen him into something good. Something very good. Joseph essentially says, don't be worried about all of this. Of course, his brothers, their mouths are hanging open, slack-jawed and buggy-eyed, because they could not believe that this was Joseph first of all, and that Joseph was responding to all this the way he was. Don't worry about it, Joseph says. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you have sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. It all fits together, says Joseph. God was the one who sent me here, not you. It had nothing to do with the fact that you pushed me into that pit and left me for dead. It had to do with God. And God sent me before Pharaoh and before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So now the whole family can dwell together and and not in poverty, but can live well even in the midst of the famine. And before you know it, they're all crying. They're all weeping. There's a lot of weeping in the Bible, lest you think otherwise. All because in one single, powerful, life-changing moment, love prevailed over anger. Love prevailed over hurt and the need for vengeance. All at once, there's this family that had once been divided and destroyed, but now is restored and unified as one. Disaster becomes celebration. Triumphant music swells up in the background. The scene fades out. Roll the credits. Imagine, if you will, friends, a love so indwelling, so overflowing that it cannot help but touch anyone and everyone that comes into contact with it. Imagine love so abundant that it can be experienced even in the absolute worst of circumstances. Imagine a love so all-encompassing that it can envelop Joseph's forgiveness for his brothers the preservation of a family, and the deliverance of an entire nation in one fell swoop. It is what has been referred to as the impossible possibility. 
But there it is, right there in the story of Joseph and his brothers. And truthfully, it's the same kind of love that's found again and again and again throughout the biblical story. A love that is mitigated in grace. And this is a story that can be found in our stories as well. In fact, I would suggest to you today that such love can be found in whatever possibility we could name here today. That is, love can be found if God is in the midst of it. Because if God is in it, friends, the love of which we speak will be there. Now, while most of us can't claim the experience of having been cast into the pit by seven jealous brothers, although I'm an only child, so what do I know? Nonetheless, in that wonderful old story, we have a truth that rings very clearly for us today, at least in the sense of, of how it feels to experience God's love in such a surprising and overwhelming way. I know it holds true for me, that is. You know the old saying about how the devil is in the details? Well, the older I get, the more I'm discovering that more often than not, it's been God working in the details of life. Shifting my perceptions of people and situations, prodding me, I used that word earlier on purpose, prodding me to move in ways and directions I have been heretofore reluctant to go, and opening up as I move forward possibilities the right possibilities, I might add, most usually offering them up long, long before I'm ready to acknowledge them. The point is here is that ready or not, like it or not, God is always there. And though my humanity might well fight God's relentless divinity to me from time to time, more often than not, in fact, I can also tell you that I am always the better for God's persistence in the matter. And I know I'm not alone in this understanding, right? As a pastor, I bear witness to God's work, God's persistent work on a daily basis. And I dare say that at, at nearly every hospital bedside vigil, back when I was able to do those things, in the midst of every funeral, in the middle of the deepest and the most insurmountable tragedies and conflicts that people have ever had to face in this life, somewhere in all of that, somehow, there always seems to be the light of God's grace shining through the cracks of sadness, confusion, and grief. I remember a memorial service nearly 30 years ago now that I led for a nine-year-old girl who had passed away from childhood leukemia. It was, I will tell you, one of the hardest funerals I've ever had to do, not simply because this was a child, and that was enough, but also because 30 years ago I had a child that age, and I couldn't even begin to imagine 
the pain those two parents were going through. In fact, to tell you the truth, after days of trying to work out a eulogy, 10 minutes before the service was to begin, I had nothing. Nothing on paper, at least. Nothing I felt that I was going to be able to say that had any real meaning at all. And uh, as you might well imagine, I was starting to panic, a feeling that only intensified when I discovered that our church sanctuary was now filled to overflowing with family members, friends, and a great many young children, most of whom who were at a funeral service for the very first time. Oh, great, I thought. Now what am I going to do? Well, it happened that one request that the family had made was that we play a tape of some music that the little girl loved, a song from the cartoon movie of that era, An American Tale. Remember that one? That was, if you remember the story of Fievel the Immigrant Mouse, separated from his mother in old New York. Very well done movie. Steven Spielberg was involved in it, as I recall. And the song that was at the center of this film was a song called Somewhere Out There. Somewhere out there, someone waits for me. You remember the song. They still play it on the radio. It's a song about how true love transcends even the farthest of distances. I know it is a sad song to begin with. And we weren't even playing the Linda Ronstadt version, friends. We were playing the version directly from the film with a little mouse singing into the moonlight. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> and it was really emotional. Everyone is crying, as you would expect. And so were all these children. But as I looked out on the congregation, I noticed something else. All these kids, they're all singing along with the record. Singing, or at least mouthing every word of love and caring and hope. Every one of them channeling Five of the Mouse. And, and the music is touching their hearts in a way that nothing else could at that particular moment. It was, at the very least, a holy moment. And I was bearing witness to it. And after it was all done, I stood up in my pulpit and began my eulogy. And I will tell you today, I don't remember at all what it was I said. I can tell you it wasn't on the paper. All I can tell you is that by some miracle of grace, the words came very easily. And I realized almost immediately God was in it. God was working in the details of the profound sadness of that day and the grief shared by family, friends, and a room full of third graders, not to mention one very blocked pastor. What I do remember, though, and what I can tell you today, is that a few days after the service, one of our deacons had been over into the sanctuary. We had two different buildings, and they came over from the church and brought to me a pew card that they had found there in the pew with a note written in a child's handwriting. It read simply, I feel better now. Love, Julie. 
amazing. If God is in it, you see, the impossible possibilities become not only possible, but they become real. The strength and peace we need becomes ours. And unlikely as it's going to seem at that moment, something good, something healing, and something brimming with hope is going to be found in the midst of it. Now, this is the truth that can be found at the heart of this morning's gospel reading. Those wonderful, ideal, wonderfully idealistic but seemingly impossible commands that we are to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse and pray for those who abuse us. Do not judge, we heard Cindy read to us from, from Luke, and you will not be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And I have to say that as Cindy was reading those words today, I'm thinking, boy, wouldn't this be a great world um, if that were the case always? And, and truly, these verses are very basic to our understanding of the Christian faith. But here is the bottom line. It's hard. Very, very hard standard. Almost an impossible standard to live up. Truth is, is that our human nature inevitably runs counter to Christ's teachings. Let me tell you, that's something I think we all know, but that particular passage from Luke really brings it home. Actually, I've got to tell you, I'm reminded here of a lyric from a great Lyle Lovett song, and I don't know if I'm quoting it verbatim, but it gets the point across. Lyle sings in the song, God can, but I can't. And that's the difference between God and me. <laughs> I love it. But maybe, you know, that's the whole point, right? We can't do what God would have us do or to be to one another on our own as we should, given our own human frailty and our own propensity to sin. That always seems to get in the way. But if God is in it, the love that's required for forgiveness and mercy and non-judgment and all the rest of it can and will be poured out to overflowing. There's a Canadian pastor and writer by the name of Vicki Holmes, and she has written, agape love, that is love that is full and self-sacrificial, and the kind of love to which you and I are called, is difficult. That is why, she said, Joseph had to place the situation with his brothers in God's hands. And that is why we have to take this business of truly loving one another as we should, of doing unto others as they would, we would have them do unto us, that we have to take it to the hands of God. All of that which Jesus talks about in Luke, all of which we are taught in faith, has to be put in the hands of God if we are to fulfill that call. We need, Holmes writes, to pray for God's leading in this. Pray for God's wisdom. Pray for God's love that will spill over and over so that it will pour out to all those who need it. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. You know that. We all know that. 
And honestly, I think we all know down, deep down within ourselves that what it takes for us to love in the manner that Christ demands. It's simply that God has to be in the midst of it. For you and I to be capable of mastering the impossibilities, as it were, we need God to be in the details of it, working in and through us so that truly the measure we give will be the measure we get back. Every time I hear that read in Scripture, I'm thinking, boy, that's a good line. The measure we give will be the measure we get back. I mean, who knows the kind of challenges you and I are going to have to face this week. In truth, our lives are filled with unexpected moments of truth in which, like Joseph in our story today, we are kind of, we are not kind of, we are confronted with the kind of circumstances that demand from us a response. And the question is, it always is, how are we going to respond? An unforeseen piece of bad news changes everything. A moral or ethical dilemma suddenly rears its ugly head. A breach of trust a crisis of faith that rocks our world to its very core. I mean, who knows how love and compassion and forgiveness and mercy and grace is going to figure into the decisions we are going to have to make. How are these virtues of faith that we have been taught from the time we were little kids actually, might actually apply? for the facing of this hour right now. And if it does, how do we know we can follow through? Even with something as simple and as universal as doing unto others, as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. Well, maybe as Mr. Lovett has suggested, we can't. At least not wholly or primarily by our own efforts. It's not to say that we don't make an effort sometimes, but maybe we can't do everything that we need to do. But God can. And the good news, it is that precisely within our own human weakness and fallibility that God's love and mercy begins to flow. Working in and through the details of every new day every relationship, every unforeseen circumstances, every circumstance that we know we're going to have to hit head on, everything that happens that girds us to do the right thing with mercy, forgiveness, with justice, and always, always with love. Because if God is in it, if God is working with us in it, Whatever it is, something good is going to come out of it. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, If God is in it. It was recorded during our February the 20th service of worship at East Congregational Church here in Concord, New Hampshire. Now, if you'd like to be a part of one of those services live and in person, know that we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road in Concord. 
just off exit 16 on I-93. Or you can always join us for one of those services live online via Facebook Live on our East Congregational Church Facebook page and afterward posted on our East Church YouTube channel. However it happens for you, we'd love to have you be with us. And with that, we come to the close of this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, and I thank you for listening today. And until next time, stay safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.